Hello and welcome to Box Cutters episode 143. We're running out of time and we haven't even started. My name is Josh Canal. To my left, always an absolute pleasure to have his world of knowledge in the studio with us, Tom Elliott. Oh, Josh, it's very nice to be here. I thought you got your left and your right confused the way that you were saying such a, a pleasant <laughs> invitation about me. No, because this is, uh, this is uh, and then to my right is Brett Cropley. <laughs> Good evening, viewers. See, that's, which that's, is, I just have disdain for backwards. him. Just disdain. Disdain for him. Uh, you know, Nothing but praise for you, Tom. I know you've always said it's hard to soar like an eagle when you're surrounded by turkeys. But uh... <laughs> uh, Who doesn't like turkey? Who doesn't like turkey? I, I wish it was turkey time now. Well, you know, in America, uh, a couple of years ago, when um, the turkey that they ritually slaughter for the White House each year became so popular and George Bush's daughters decided that it shouldn't be killed, that um, they have a bit of a funny thing about killing the Thanksgiving turkey each year in uh, in the States now. Oh. There's a bit of a thumbs up, thumbs down kind of thing, isn't mm, there? Very like, gladiatorial. We still want to eat it, but we just don't want to be reminded that it was once a living animal. Ah, uh, see, which I just, I just don't, but I, I believe if you're... If you're going to eat meat, know that it comes from a living animal I just, and just just be this firm is, in that this decision. This is off the topic, but about a decade ago, there was uh, they were going to close down Luna Park in Melbourne and they invited submissions as to what could be done with them. One of the ones mm. I, I put in was a concept, <laughs> I put in several, but one of them, I think one of my better ideas was a concept called Meat World. It was like having been through the Abbotsford <laughs> Children's Farm or the Collingwood Children's Farm, I thought... The idea of uh, an abattoir connected to the paddocks of baby animals and having children seeing the sort of process from paddock to plate. And then they'd, they'd, they'd make an informed choice about whether or not to have a ham sandwich the next day. Ah, that's I, I like. And could mm. you also, at the end of that, get a really nice uh, kind of rare well, you could take You could have something to eat and you could take the rest of it home with you. But you'd participate in the selection and slaughtering process. But then you get to eat a really nice steak at the end Absolutely. of it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm 100% for that. Did John Saffron rip off that idea and put it in his uh, he untelevised pilot? He did, he did. Um, John, I spoke to him about it. John, if you're listening, you still owe me for this one. Um, the other idea was to have an urban paintball centre where corporate warriors could go and shoot the crap out of each other. Ah. In, that- in, in an urban environment with you know, overturned cars and trams and you know, burnt out buildings and things like that. With with the uh, the smell of Port Phillip Bay wafting over you, as it is, we still just have a crappy amusement park. So. <laughs> with with I think one of the oldest roller coasters in existence. Just about, I think the scenic railway is uh, apart from the Mad Max that gets sort of uh, resurrected at the Royal Melbourne the Show. Mad Mouse, yeah. Mad Mouse, yeah, sorry, Mad Max on the Mad Mouse. But the uh, the for, for those who don't know, the uh, scenic railway in Melbourne, I think, is actually the last of mm. its kind of uh, of roller coaster. I seem to recall that Coney Island had one until relatively recently, but I just don't know if it's still going. And that should really make you safe if you visit Melbourne and uh, and go to Luda Park and see the scenic railway. It's a it's a terrifying experience, and I can recommend wearing knee pads. Definitely, this is however box cutters, and it is all about television. And we've got a packed show. And uh, Tom, you're running out of time. We've got a, a huge show, and uh, and and we've got to get out of here almost immediately. We so, do. Uh, we've got James Talia calling in, and uh, we've got lots to talk to him about. Tom, we're going to get your expert comments during the news. Uh, we'll have a bunch of pork, but I don't know if we'll have time for uh, for anything else. There were lots of uh, of other things and uh, and some phone noises. Mm. Yeah, rocket. Anyway, let's kick, kick things off, off with the box cutters news. Box cutters news. 
after a couple of false starts in uh, little slips to uh, box cutters, neither of the uh, the proposed people have uh, taken over the hosting role on Star Dancers. No, it wasn't Andrew G, and it wasn't what did uh, Adam Richard. It was going to be Larry Emder. Larry Emder. Uh, it was going to be Shane Bourne, Brett Cropley. It was, who actually uh, uh, publicly turned down Channel 7, said, I don't want to be greedy. I think I'm a bit too overextended as it is. And so, of course, the natural next choice for a host is Daniel McPherson. What? Really? Really? Has he hosted anything? I don't remember him ever having hosted anything. There was there was talk of him maybe having something to do with The X Factor on Channel 10 mm. uh, all those years ago. If anyone remembers The X Factor, what a popular show that was. I would check it on Fact Monster, but uh, there's yeah, you no got- problems here. Um, and Tom, your uh, application wasn't successful there either? Yeah, lost in the mail again. But of course, Sydney, uh, sorry, City Homicide, the show on which he's been seen for some time now, is uh, doing extraordinarily well. Yes, and that's why Shane Bourne, I think, had to let him uh, have a crack at it. But everybody knows that Sonia Kruger is the real power behind the throne in uh, Dancing with the Stars. Everyone keeps saying it. And that's, this, is, this is the thing. All our guests keep coming on saying, Sonia Kruger should be host of Dancing with the Stars. I, think she's a, I, I personally think she's a very charismatic, uh, very, very apt host. But uh, there's, there's still this fear amongst commercial networks of putting a woman in a hosting role. Mm. I, th- I think, though, it's becoming like a rite of passage in Australian television. Now, you know, if you were if you're on British TV years ago, you had to be in a pantomime. That was one of those things you just had to do yes. to know that you, you were a well-rounded media sort of personality, whether you're a newsreader or whatever. And uh, here in Australia now, it's, you've got to host a sort of semi-reality, semi-talent show. So whether it's It Takes Two or whether it's Dancing with the Stars or something like that, that's become the, the new rite of passage for Australian actors to go through. And do you think that's... Uh, where do you think that comes from in in the concept of, of being an Australian television personality. I mean, I, 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 Gretel did a great job mm. uh, with uh, with Big Brother, but then you look at what AJ does with The Fattest Loser, and uh, and that's just appalling. I, I tell you what I think it is. It reflects nothing more than the fact that reality TV, and these sorts of talent shows are a form of reality TV, it has simply mm. taken over the local production quotas. So whereas it used to be drama and uh, you know or, or soap operas, now it's re- different forms of reality TV. So to make it, given the, the volume of reality TV that's on Australian television, on the free-to-air networks, um, that's where you have to gravitate towards. So basically, NIDA now just needs to, to train their actors to mm. be game show hosts. Exactly. That's, <laughs> that's extraordinary. <laughs> and, but, you know, good luck to everyone, uh, especially Channel 9, who, as if they're not in enough trouble... Uh, with you know cancelling news shows, I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll talk to uh, to James about that mm. a lot more, uh, and also having to go up against Channel Seven, who have the the Olympics starting this Friday. It's a lot sooner than we thought. Starting this Friday, the Olympics, uh, Channel Nine are having to put crap on up against the Olympics because they don't want to burn all their good shows. Well, everyone, everybody's doing it already. Uh, Channel 7's putting on repeats uh, as we speak. Um, they're they're getting, getting ahead of the jump on the uh, ratings no period. Uh, well, 
because Channel 7 aren't going to have the time to show their repeats during the Olympics because they'll have the Olympics on, so they have to start now. Mm. Uh, Channel 9, however, are going with some first-run programs like Monster House. Now, I thought this was dead and buried. I I didn't think they would ever, ever bring back Monster House. So are these these episodes they had in the can that were just kind of sitting around waiting for something like... A yeah, time they, when nobody would be watching. They've got the so whole they series. They've got the whole series in the camera. How many did they play? Two? They played two. Uh, and uh, and you know, it, as if as if people's eyes didn't bleed enough after after the playing of those two. But the, the, I mean, the weird thing is though that you might as well play the the cheapest absolute program you can put to air. Because for the two or three, the two weeks the Olympics are on, that's what people will watch. Yes. The studies show, I mean, there's, there's no long-term benefit. Well, no, you won't. And actually, I'm not going to either. I've never been less excited about mm. an Olympics, I have to say. But the fact is, in, in the same way that Channel 7 wasn't that upset when they lost the football um, five or six years ago now, it was because it, it costs so much money to put it on. It's actually debatable. And, of course, it's like hosting the Olympics in the city. It's very debatable as to whether or not there's any real long-lasting benefit, be it in the terms of uh, ratings for, for a TV network or, indeed, economic benefits for the city that, um, that hosts the, uh, the Games. Well, it's done wonders for Moscow. Oh, it has, hasn't it? You know, it, Moscow's really come leaves And Reykjavik. Has uh, uh, Calgary, Montreal is just it's, the centre of the tourist world these days. Eventually, and, eventually, it did bring democracy to to Moscow. Um, hopefully, it'll do the same with China, and we'll get, have to see the end of a uh, totalitarian regime over there, which well, well, firstly, which has really kind of walked away from communism anyway, because everybody's though, into having cash. But Brett, before it before it can do that to to Beijing, it's going to have to bring. Uh, the, the end of communism to to Los Angeles and Atlanta, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, know, they're, they're still works in progress at best. <laughs> the uh, the so and Sydney, know, Ch- Channel Liner <laughs> and Sydney, Channel Liner going to be uh, going to be showing their uh, their terrible stuff during the Olympics, but have fought tooth and nail to get the next Olympics, the London Olympics. So uh, you know it, why why bother though? I mean. Th- it's not as important to us as it was 20 years ago. Uh, it's, it should be, I think, it should be one. For, but, uh, you know, the, the negative press that Olympic athletes have, have had with uh, drug cheating and the, the spectacle just isn't there anymore. And uh, in Australia, Channel 7 also face a very interesting problem with the opening ceremony mm. that uh, Australia normally fifth or something in the uh you know greece always went in the first alphabetical and, order of and then countries. uh and then and then albania know, alphabetically and uh, like there is there isn't actually a chinese alphabet no so so what what it's come down to is the number of strokes in the first character of the country's name in cantonese and no and, in mandarin and uh and australia has 14, 14 strokes. strokes which is right down near the end so they're going to be third last and that means it's going to be, you know, an hour now, before also, they come out. Also, uh, to, to take into account uh, Northern Hemisphere viewers, the opening parade isn't kicking off until 10 to 10 uh, China time, Beijing time. So it's, it's going to be even later over here. Which is where, uh, you know, the five people who have bought TiVo now... Uh, uh, they're they're really going to be uh, in for a, a nice little pre-record treat. I'm sure they'll uh, they'll time shift the opening ceremony. 
and uh, everybody else will just be stuffed. Really? Can you can you set TiVo to to record shows in advance and and watch them in the past? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can. Nice. That actually makes you wonder why Channel magical. 9 is so keen to get the London Olympics because in terms of time difference, that's an appalling time and everything that you want to watch will be at 3 and 4 in the morning. There's about, I think, yeah, by the yeah. time it's on, there'll be a nine-hour time difference. Yes, you know, they, they have uh, an existing audience for the Ashes, mm. but when the Ashes are in London... They don't really want to show it. Well, and as we saw three years ago now, when uh, SBS were able to pick up the rights to the Ashes, because none of the commercial networks wanted it, because they just assumed, wrongly as it turned out, though, but they assumed that no one would actually want to watch. Yeah, and they, uh, you know, and SBS have done wonders over the years with taking the uh, the, the graveyard uh, sports coverage and having people actually waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning I, to, to I watch think it. I think you find one of the reasons that the Olympics is sought after by the free-to-air networks, it's still one of those um, protected sporting events that can't be siphoned off under the anti-siphoning rules to pay TV only. So it's one of those things they almost have to buy because they can buy it because it can't be bought by, by the pay TV operators. As a result, they, they, the free-to-airs feel that it's one of those things they simply have to have. And there aren't many sporting events left like that these days. But also, as we as we have seen from the advertising on Channel Seven, they have broadcast partners, and Telstra is one of those. Would, mm. How much would they be making out of out of those deals? My understanding is what 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 they've got from the broadcast partners versus what it's costing to put it on. There's money being made, but not a great deal. It's one of those things that you sort of put up as a, as a trophy on the mantelpiece. We were the official Olympic station back then. As far as advertisers think about it, they just go, well, yes, for two weeks we'll be buying a bit of ad space and you'll be selling your broadcast partnerships. But after that, who cares? Tom, uh, I, I don't know about Brett, but for me, the rest of the news I have is shit and I want to talk to you about uh, exciting stuff in uh, that's been happening well, in the we world have, of television. We, we have got a bit of controversy from Channel 9 uh, with Sam Newman on the footy show from uh, last Thursday uh, in regards to... Uh, Tasmanian Government Minister Paula Reet, who um, we heard just coming in tonight has uh, been admitted to hospital down in Tasmania. And under poss- possibly suspicious circumstances, the uh, the family is supposed to be making a statement on Tuesday. So probably by the time you hear this show, uh, there will be a, a statement released from, uh, from her family. And this was uh, off the back of uh, Sam Newman saying at the end of an interview on the footy show on Thursday night, we couldn't get her on, could we? It's worthy of coming on her and then uh, getting kind of pulled up by James Brayshaw over that and uh, yes James Brayshaw so very good at editing that program and making sure that Sam doesn't get out of line oh yeah yeah he holds the whole thing together it's it's miraculous Uh, yeah that's uh, that's it's an interesting bit of news Uh, I'll be interested to see how it gets reported in the coming days depending on uh, what announcement the the family comes out with Uh, but it it would be Mm. very interesting if uh, you know, it could be construed that uh, an off-the-cuff comment by Sam Newman could result in someone being hospitalised. I think that's uh, that's that's very interesting. Uh, but that that's definitely what certain media outlets are alluding to at the moment. Is uh, is my understanding? Now, Tom, on the news front, but not on this week's news, we've seen a number of things. Uh, to do with uh, PBL Media and CVC and Kerry Stokes. And I was wondering if you could enlighten us on 
those things. So uh, let's start with Kerry Stokes. This is uh, probably in chronological order. Uh, Kerry Stokes a few weeks ago announced that he has... uh, he has bought a part of CBC, is that right? Yes, no. It was reported in the Financial Review and other papers that he bought 4.8% of Consolidated Media. Now, just to recap, Consolidated Media is the the rump of the old PBL. So PBL was split into the, the, the gaming division, which is now Crown Gaming, is a separately listed company. Um, the media operations, of which 75% have been sold to, to CVC, which is a private equity house, the remaining 25% sits inside Consolidated Media. So Consolidated Media owns 25% of Channel 9, 25% of 25% of Foxtel, uh, bits and pieces of the old Consolidated Press magazine empire and so forth. And so that's that's the organisation known as PBL Media. <laughs> yeah, well... Is- it, it, is owned 25% media, yeah. by Consolidated Media and 75% by Yeah, so PBL CVC. Media is owned 75% by CVC, 25% by Consolidated Media. Kerry Stokes's operation has now bought 5% of Consolidated Media. So all he's really bought is 5% of 25% of the old Nine network. Mm-hmm. So it's on a great deal. Now, you have to say, why is he doing that? Interestingly, Kerry Stokes, uh, a bit over a year ago, did the same thing that James Packer did. He also sold a majority interest in the, in the Seven Network to private equity concerns. So he's sitting on um, a huge pile of cash. And to be honest, he's been frittering that cash away. He's made a number of investments which haven't really worked. I don't he- think you could call lawsuits investments. Well, he, he, he has funded a, a litigation company. He's, how's uh, how's uh, WA News going for it? Well, that's the other big acquisition. Well, it's yeah. not an acquisition yet. I mean, he first built up his shareholding in that in late 2006, yep. and he's now topped that up under what they call the creep provisions of the Corporations Act, where once – not that Kerry Stokes is a creep, but, although some people think he is. But the investment the, the, creeps the, up. You, you can – without making a takeover bid for the company, once you get to 20%, every six months you can buy another 3%, and he's exercised that right. Now, the West Australian Media, which owns um, the, the, the one and only real newspaper in Perth, I, I think it's a bit of an ego thing in the sense that as a Perth boy, he wants to control the Perth newspaper and he doesn't want to pay a premium for doing so. With consolidated media, so building up a stake in uh, what, the rump of the old Nine network, I think what it is, um, just a few months ago, there was a sort of an aborted takeover bid made by another sort of media scion, of course, Lachlan Murdoch. And he failed to get his financing over the line, and he and James Packer were going to make a bid at around 380 a share, backed by another lump of private equity money. Um, the private equity group tried to drop the price. James Packer, as, as the seller, said no. And so the stock's been languishing ever since. I think Kerry Stokes' feeling is that someone will come back and have a crack at it. And I think it's more to do with the Foxtel shareholding than anything else, mm-hmm. because I, I, I still firmly have the belief that Free-to-air networks have a, a very limited lifespan now. I, I give them 10 years for them to still be profitable. I actually think that beyond that, no one will want to own them in this country. And if Foxtel maintains its status as a monopoly uh, pay TV provider, then that's where perhaps where the real value lies. And, of course, Telstra owns a chunk of Foxtel, as does uh, News Corporation. But Kerry Stokes, to me, it, it's more that he's got a pile of money. He cleverly sold out at the peak of the media boom. He's now looking for things to do. So it's a bit of WA newspapers, and why don't I grab a bit of consolidated media? I'm, I'm not convinced there's a, there's a great strategic plan sort of overlaying all this. It's, it's more like the start of a monopoly game where you buy up everything that you land on. Well, he's, he's buying the things he feels he understands. Right. The, uh, the, the thing, though, with 
consolidated media and and their part ownership in the company that owns Channel Nine. Uh, is there a limit? Is there? I mean, we were talking on the show. Is there a line that uh, he could cross where it would be? Considered a definite conflict of interest, where uh, and and where the uh, the cross media ship media ownership uh, rules might have to come into effect. Yes and no. Um, midway through two thousand and seven, of course, the media ownership laws were relaxed, and so various deals that perhaps couldn't have previously been done were done. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we know that uh, you know, Fairfax bought Southern Cross, for example, broadcasting, which you know, owns Three AW amongst other things. Um, what what happened was, though, of course, the two biggest media proprietors, being the Packers and Stokes, weren't the buyers. They were sellers of assets. Now, the rules as they currently are would prevent Kerry Stokes from owning more than 15% of consolidated media because he owns another capital city TV station, being, of course, Channel 7. But this is where we're not quite sure how the rules work because consolidated media doesn't own Channel 9 outright anymore. It only owns a quarter of Channel 9. So if it only owns a quarter, then conceivably he could buy 60% of consolidated media and only therefore control 15% of the Nine network. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't been tested yet. So we just don't know. My, my feeling is he's going to test it by increasing his stake in it and just see what, uh, well, what the ACCC has to say about it. But the reality is, and this is what I don't understand, the 75% owner of the Nine network, they're the ones that control it. And it wouldn't matter if Kerry Stokes bought the, other, the whole other 25%. He still wouldn't control it. All right, let's, let's talk about the other owner, CVC yep. Investments, uh, the, uh, the, the foreign-owned uh, investment company. They're, they're yeah. a hedge fund? Uh, well, no, they're, they're, they're a private equity fund. Right. I mean, um, but, the, yeah, I mean, they, they buy uh, significant stakes, if not majority stakes, or entire companies and run them and then try and spin out enough cash to make a profit on their investment. They uh, bought Channel 9 and are now faced with a huge debt and a, have giant interest repayments mm. on that debt. Uh, they're cutting costs where they can in Channel 9. They're uh, trying to sell off as much as they can. They're, uh, they're, they're sacking people to, to try to stem that, uh, that hemorrhage of, of cash that, uh, that is involved in running a commercial television network, how are they going to survive with, with that? Is, is this a really bad investment decision for them? And is it going to be really bad for Channel 9 and for Australian TV? Okay, a few different questions. Yes, it could be a very bad investment decision, but there's parallels for this. I mean, we know that Alan Bond bought Channel 9 back in the either late 80s or 1990, mm-hmm. and he paid at the time, you know, a billion dollars, and then famously Kerry Packer bought it back from him for a quarter of that, a, a few $8. years $8. later, 50, something like that. Been. Yeah, price of a milkshake and a hamburger. Yeah. <laughs> um, so did it ruin the network during his, uh, his ownership? Probably not. Some people say it went downhill, but, I mean, the point is the network survived. Um, have CVC put themselves into the same problem? Look, the whole private equity industry, which until recently was predicated upon being able to borrow huge amounts of money without paying very much interest, interest rates were very low, debt was freely available. And it's not just media industries. I mean, it was just everything. I mean, a private equity group owns the Chrysler Corporation in America, you know, the, the third biggest car maker in the States. Now, you know, General Motors and Ford are going bust. I can tell you Chrysler's going bust as well. And they'll do, that is their owners, will do billions of dollars. The people who lent them the money will do billions of dollars. Um, there's no doubt that CVC and um, 
I think it was KKR that, that bought out Channel 7, paid mm-hmm. too much. There's, you, know, you, wouldn't get, you wouldn't even get two-thirds if half the price if you were selling those networks now just because the finance is not available. Will they be all right? It's hard to say. If they're not, they'll have to sell to someone else. That someone else could well be Kerry Stokes who might – or you know, in, in the same way that Channel 10 years ago got sold to Izzy Asper – Mm-hmm. Who, who's the Canadian um, media billionaire who controls CanWest. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's plenty of parallels for Australian TV networks getting in trouble where someone's paid too much for them and has to sell to someone else. As long as there's other buyers, the networks will continue even if some owners lose a lot of money. And CanWest were looking for a buyer for Channel 10. Yes, well, that's the thing. I mean, that year. was the weird thing. A year ago, all three commercial networks were basically for sale. Two of them got sold. Ten got offered a price, or CanWest got offered, I think, around $3.20. They wanted a bit more, and the share price is now a dollar forty. I mean, they should have taken the money that was on offer, just as James Packer should have taken the three dollars eighty that was on offer, you know, for for his consolidated media stake. But the, you know, the reality is that at the moment you're going to see cost cutting at the Nine Network, and we know that it's already happening. Uh, will it destroy the network? My view is no, because I think the bigger picture that it's facing free-to-air networks is bigger than the ownership. And it's, it's, it's the drift of people into other forms of media and the fact that eyeballs aren't seeing advertisements so much. They're not glued to the TV screen like they used to. In a, in a situation like we have with Channel 9 where uh, it is uh, no longer owned by the one person, the one family, it's no longer... Con- it's, it's well, no, con- but it, it wasn't even then. I mean, it was a publicly listed company. Well, yes. they, they own 36% of it. You know, I mean, shareholders own the other 64. But, uh, but there's no doubt Kerry Packer played a large role in the in the, the running of the yep. the network uh do uh just large investment companies have someone whose job it is to uh to make sure that channel nine uh fits their interests well or would they oh they say, do absolutely would they, they, do, would they say we we put our trust in david gingell and, and we will let david gingell do the work no, that i can he tell you david gingell as did eddie mcguire before him no, very well. They report to the person at CVC, whose name escapes me from that because they're not a public person, but, I mean, they're the ones that control it. I mean, is it better to have an investment company owning a station as opposed to a very powerful, charismatic, but idiosyncratic individual? That's hard to say. I mean, they used to criticise the, you know, the, the Lord Rothamies in the, in the British press, you know, 70-odd years ago for trying to influence governments and so forth. Some would say that just having pure economic owners is, is maybe a better outcome. I mean, they will seek to do what they what they want to do, which is get as many people watching their watching their shows and selling ads and keeping costs down. Do we want Kerry Packers and Rupert Murdochs and so forth controlling our media again? I don't know if that's a good thing. The assumption seems to be that it, that it was a good thing. I'm, I'm actually not convinced. Well, we uh, we, we definitely uh, didn't like it when it was when it was happening. But maybe now it's just a, a case of we miss the things that we once had. Well, uh, I mean, that's a common human you know. condition. But as I said, t- to me, free-to-air TV is facing almost bigger challenges than the fact that in this country at least a couple of the owners have borrowed too much money and are struggling with the debt. If they have to sell, there will be buyers. They'll, they'll, they'll take a, a haircut. They'll take a real haircut on it. But it won't stop it being broadcast. It won't stop shows being made. But... What what is changing has got more to do with technology and people's viewing habits, and I think that's a much bigger challenge. And I'm not sure those buyers really understood that. And to be honest, I don't think Kerry Stokes understands it because he's obsessed with the old things, printed newspapers, free-to-air TV. 
And, and this is the thing as well. You know, it's happened a lot faster with television than it happened with newspapers. But uh, we've seen this uh, over and over and and over again with uh, with media that it is created by people who have a passion for it. The the people who get mm. very rich on it to to start with, the people who have a passion for it, then it gets uh, it gets too big. They die off. It gets sold and and becomes uh, a, a publicly listed, publicly interested. Uh, entity in and of itself, uh, and then you know becomes a monster they can no longer control. Well, look, here's the big thing. Think, think of the Australian TV networks. At the moment, what they are mainly is broadcast platforms. All right, so their owners own a a monopoly, government restricted ability to to put things out there, mm-hmm. and that's under attack. They're not really generators of content. Yes, they make it the odd program, and when we see a good one like an underbelly or something, if you're outside Victoria, we say, "Gee, isn't that great? Why don't we do more of it?" But the reality is they take other people's programming and they broadcast it. And when, and when, there, aren't, when there isn't competition for that broadcast, that's a great way to make money. Now, the, you know, the BBC has turned this on its head. I mean, I mean, the BBC is primarily a generator of content now, and it licenses that content out and sells it around the world. But we don't see much in the way of Australian content being licensed and sold around the world. I mean, the odd show does get that, – that, that happens to it. So – This is the reason I'm not confident about the long-term future of the way free-to-air TV is in this country because the proprietors still see it as the only reason they make the shows they make is because the government requires them to. They don't see themselves as generators of content. They just see themselves as filling up an available bit of airspace that they have a monopoly right to. And that monopoly right is being eroded by other forms of broadcasting. Call it the internet, call it what you will. And that's why I, I don't think they've got a great future unless they turn around and go back to being generators of content. But that's not going to happen under private equity ownership. Do you think we've been spoiled by getting it for free? Is it something that we shouldn't have gotten for free in the, in the first place? Well, I, I don't think we've been spoiled because we'd be spoiled if we just had an open broadcasting medium that might have had 20 channels rather than three commercial ones, for example. But then again, someone say, oh, well, then no one would have made any money. We wouldn't have had the quality that we've had. But, I mean, have we really had quality broadcasting in Australia? I mean, the answer is possibly not. Well, so, you know, some and then some horribly, horribly not. I mean, that, that's the truth, there, as, with, as with everything. And, uh, and I think we're seeing that with the internet now where we do have, you know, essentially open broadcasting. There are some uh, truly... Uh, excellent and and high quality shows and uh, and websites out there, box cutters. Uh, but there are uh, there are also some uh, some some terrible things out there. And well, well, then I, I would say I would say the market will answer your question. The fact that people now have a choice, and it's a much wider choice than what they used to have, they will gravitate towards the things that suit them. And if the free to air networks don't provide it, where there didn't used to be much of an alternative, there is now. But but I, I do want to stress that that are you just carrying other people's content? That's what our TV stations have done. Or are you generating content? That's the challenge. And some people do that very well. I mean, people being some networks. And unfortunately here, they generally don't. Tom, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, topic and, and we're going to have uh, James Tyler on the line in a minute to no doubt talk about uh, things remembered and uh, and days of yore in, uh, in, in the way journalism goes. So... Uh, We'll go to him on the phone and uh, stick around. We'll we'll have a chat. Hello, this is Frank Thring, gossip from heaven on the box cutters. I bumped into Ray Charles the other day. Well, he bumped into me because his dog's not dead yet. 
Uh, that's uh, Adam Richard pretending to be Frank Three. Because I said to him last week when we had him on the show, uh, could you do a, an ID as Frank Three? And he just went, and that's what he did. That That is what he did. Now, on the phone, calling all the way from London town, it is the Channel 9 European correspondent and our own European correspondent, James Talia. Good evening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, Vincent Price. <laughs> that just, that just uh, kind of makes me homesick, remembering that old, old Triple R ID with the real Frank Three. Oh, yeah. There were a number of those. He, he was uh, good good friends with Triple R back in the day when he, he lived just around the corner. There you go. And he, uh, my, my, my favourite was, uh, what are you doing with that thing in your hand? <laughs> Put, Put it, it down! down. <laughs> that was, um, uh, and bless. Also, he'd, he'd actually given the station a, a, a goatskin rug that uh, apparently had quite a history to it, including uh, uh, some um, activities with uh, a certain voice. Maybe the voice of, uh, of Australian music. Oh. oh the, oh, right. Boy. Right. Well, good, before, uh, bef- before we get Tell into... Uh, yeah, before we get into uh, more trouble... And, uh, and uh, Tom, do you know any good lawyers? It's I do, and uh, good evening to you both, and good evening, James. But, uh, yeah, I know plenty of good lawyers, and I've had to. And, of course, my favourite Frank Thing thing on Triple R is just uh, still playing during Radiothon. He just says, subscribe or die. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, now, James, it, you know, Gosh. Channel Nine, which you know, your employers, and uh, and and bless them for that, and uh, and you know, f- for a long time, as we've discussed many times on the show, were a shining light of of journalism on commercial television in Australia. They had their last episodes of Nightline and Sunday. Sunday finished uh, last week, and uh, sorry, just this Yesterday. Sunday passed, and uh, and Nightline finished the week before. Now, to me, James, these shows were uh, were both really about how television news and current affairs could be, what they could be on commercial networks. Uh, how has their loss affected? you and and your colleagues in uh, in journalism well I, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's revealing anything to say that people are sad about it you can bandy about cliches such as that it's the end of an era and that's true um, and I, I suspect that, that that feeling goes all the way up to the top of news and current affairs management um, but the fact is uh, sadly, times have changed, and if you don't have a proprietor who's willing to wear a financial loss, as Kerry Packer was willing to, uh, to have a show like Sunday on air, then um, perhaps it's a miracle that Sunday survived this long. It's as simple as that, really. Well, yeah, and that's and that's what I, I don't understand. And uh, and Tom, you worked on Sunday for uh, for a number of months. Yes, I did. It was um, back in um, oh. Mid to late 2006, when Ross Greenwood and Ellen Fanning took over from um, from Yarn Event. Ah, so this this was the the beginning this was of the, the big change, or someone say the beginning of the end. And James, I know that uh, was it. Um, who was the producer back then? It was Ro- Ross Lyon. I th- no, um, uh, John Lyon. John Lyon. That's producer. right. Yeah, John Lyon was the producer, and Eddie McGuire, of course, was still in um, still in the hot seat back then at Channel Nine. 
And they had high hopes to, to take Sunday, but, but make it less serious and make it more like a magazine than a high-end current affairs program. And a lot of people thought that was pretty much the end that, that, that when, when I went on it. <laughs> Just brief, I, I might add, I, I was on every second week for about six or seven minutes a week, so I'm not going to take in all the responsibility for the show going downhill. But, but then you're on payroll for like another six months after that, weren't it? Yeah, well, I had a good lawyer. Now you talk about good lawyers. <laughs> I, I, the best thing about that thing was I had a good contract. But I mean, James, I can remember that was that was at the time when um, James Packer, the other James, sold a, a majority share in the network to private equity interests. And there was a fair bit of budget cutting after that. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, now that budget cutting has recommenced um, and, and as I say that's just commercial reality um, the people who now own the network obviously have to find savings uh, at this time and and that's what's going on but the other factor for, for Sunday was that there was renewed competition all of a sudden when Weekend Sunrise appeared mm. um, effectively uh, almost as a, as a, a sort of a a, a slower version of their weekday show, but definitely more down market than Sunday had been, and the audience went with it. Well, um, that's the thing, though. Pretty- Was it really competition, though? I mean, the the thing is, the people who watched Sunday, who loved to watch Sunday, and the people who would ordinarily watch Sunrise on a weekday, I wouldn't think they'd necessarily be the same... Uh, you know, if you, if you look at the ads that they had on Sunday, and it was, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, Anderson Consulting ads or CPA ads and uh, a lot of uh, big business uh, kind of intelligentsia. A lot of BMW ads. Yeah. Mm. Uh, they're yeah. not the Sunrise audience. They're not no, the Brecky Central but- people. You're right, and 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 on paper, that's that's certainly the case. You wouldn't expect this, the the Sunday audience to be to be switching, but the fact is, once Weekend Sunrise gained a foothold, Sunday's figures were well down and stayed that way. So while it's, it's difficult to believe that the people who would have been tuning in to watch, you know, Laurie's interview and and Peter Thompson's review and the cover story would would switch to Weekend Sunrise, there was a there was a shift as far as the numbers went. And I think the other thing was that people forget, of course, that with only three commercial networks and the ABC and SBS not scoring very large on a Sunday morning, that, you know, even if you like to think that your audience is different, the fact is there's an enormous amount of crossover because there's only, you know, there's only X percent of people watching and they've only got three commercial choices. So if they've got the TV on and it's not Channel 9, then it's going to be Channel 7. That's the thing. Well, yeah, and, right. and and if these people would watch Sunday because there was nothing else for them to watch because it was either Sunday mm. or cartoons or Mass for You at Home. and Well, because it's difficult now to remember the time before Insiders as well. Mm. Well, yeah, when there was just... There, there was Rage and then there was... Uh, you know, and, and back when Sunday started, there was. It, it was Mass for You at Home on the ABC. Yeah. And uh, and Channel Seven and uh, Channel Ten well, were so just had, cartoons uh, or video hits. Yeah, programs like An Hour of Power. Yes, and um, <laughs> some good religious programming back then. <laughs> the Crystal Cathedral Straight from the Crystal Cathedral. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you know the, the landscape did change, but one of the interesting anecdotes I heard during the during the week was uh, that Kerry Packer never once interfered with Sunday. Mm. That he, you know, it was, it was his baby and he understood uh, the the need for it. Uh, and for a man who, you know, seemingly interfered in almost every single aspect of his network to not interfere in 
uh, in this show was a really big call, I think. Yeah, but I, I think there's, there, there was always an assumption that that Kerry Packer intervened directly in news and current affairs. And, and from my time with the network, which goes back almost 10 years, um, I haven't seen, I didn't see too much evidence of direct interference at all. So I, while people always used to cite that conspiracy theory, um, uh, I, I'm not sure that it was as much the case as, as people like to think. So that doesn't surprise me. And what about Nightline? I mean, it, Nightline for me was uh, my, for, for a long time, my uh, daily digest of news. And it seemed to me uh, a fantastic amalgamation or, or aggregation of the best nine stories of the day, the, the best reporting they had of the day, all put together in, in one solid bulletin. Uh, yeah, but that- Nightline it kind of became a victim of... Um, I, I guess uh, shifts in people's lifestyle, where, whereby you know maybe two decades ago, ten thirty was seen as being late, and maybe people would go to bed then. That's not so much the case anymore, which means the concept of, of keeping viewers hooked in during prime time extends further out beyond ten thirty. So you put shows on then rather than a news bulletin. The theory being, as I understand it, that that people think once they've seen a news bulletin, it's time for bed. They won't stick around and watch something else after that. Um, so, but, but if you go back to Nightline in its heyday, you'll remember it wasn't just an aggregation. Um, the, the late, great Paul Lynham used to do his political interviews on Nightline. He was Nightline's political correspondent. Oh, yes. Um, those were really the glory days for Nightline, and it's, it's some years now since, since uh, they were doing anything like that. But it was still a really high-quality news board. Mm-hmm. But see, I, I, I think, James, the bigger issue is, Tom here, is that, I mean, my experience with, uh, in, in a brief stint with Channel 9 was that once budget cutting starts, shows that are expensive to produce, if they have a qualitative aspect that makes them very, very good, then a proprietor like a packer will say, well, we'll, we'll hang on to these because it means something. But when it comes down to, look, is this drawing any more ratings than something that we can buy for less money and stick it on at the same time, and it will still draw just as many eyeballs, people will go for the cheaper thing. And the fact he's making a separate news bulletin with separate reporting and separate stories is very, very expensive when you're already sticking a lot of resources into your evening news anyway. And I, and I think, to me, yeah. that's, just, that's just the obvious thing, that you know people will happily watch something else at that time of night, and it doesn't need to cost as much money. Yeah, that, that's dead right, exactly. You can, you can import a show, even if it's something like The Sopranos, to put on at 10.30. That's going to cost you a lot less than, than mm. churning out a whole separate news bulletin, um, especially if it's one that has unique content rather than just taking from the 6pm bulletins. And, and really, I, I mean, I think you're right. And, and what exemplifies the, the theory you've just put forward is 60 Minutes. Um, 60 Minutes still costs an enormous amount of money every year to produce, but it delivers. It's still in the top 10 shows, you know, much to Brett's disgust. Uh, <laughs> he's consistently predicted 60's demise over the past couple of years, only to be rebuffed entirely by the audience. I've been predicting um, it since Elf. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you and a, and a couple of dearly departed TV writers along with you. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, that's that, that's really the case. I mean, look, it seems trite to say it, but it is the reality. The, the network's not a charity. 
it's not a public service broadcaster. It has to make money. If costs have to be cut, then it, it's unfortunate, and a lot of us feel very sad about that. But this, you, you, you can't argue against it. These guys are going to do what they have to do to make a buck. Well, we're seeing this uh, this trend in newsrooms throughout the world, though not not just television newsrooms either. It's it's happening in radio and it's happening uh, in newspapers. Uh, that uh, the world is changing and, and newsrooms are having to adapt to, to those changes. But uh, do you think that, uh, on the whole, the way a lot of newsrooms are, are adapting is actually just to reduce quality? Uh, I, well, no, I don't, because as long as you've still got committed people on board, news gathering, the essence of news gathering... Uh, even for TV, where you rely so heavily on pictures and a lot of technical stuff, you still have to go out there and get the yarn. And as long as you've got people who are doing that, then the the quality of your news bulletin shouldn't be diminished, even if you've uh, lost people. Mm. Although, though, James, Tommy, I I would say that the things that have changed are firstly that with CCTV, you've got a lot more footage that's just out there being shot all the time, and so there are records of things that don't require you to have a camera crew on the spot. And secondly, because you've got you know, every second person with their own little video phone or their own video camera in their phone, you're getting a hell of a lot of stuff um, that's popping up on you know the online versions of newspapers, which in some ways has, has supplanted the idea of the you know the roving recorder the, or the reporter, the person out there who's, who's on the scene. And I think that's that's taking the place of some of that, that live sort of reporting these days? Yeah, to an extent. Um, but that's really only most pertinent when someone happens to be in front of something that happens mm. out of the blue, like, you know, a car crash or an explosion or, or whatever it might be. Um, so, yeah, you're right. There's a, there's a lot more material floating around. There's, there's a lot more sort of citizen journalists, I guess. Um, but you still have to have camera crews on station, ready to go, because you're not going to be able to fill your bulletin with that kind of material. Whether or not it means you need fewer camera crews is is perhaps debatable. Are we going to... to, And, you know, this is a a ridiculous futurist prediction, but with that caveat in mind, uh, are we going to eventually see a a move towards a, a time when... News will be limited to the dedicated news sources, things like Sky News, Fox News, BBC, uh, cable. So, so dedicated twenty-four hour news services on cable, and the commercial networks are going to do what they can do uh, cheapest and and most efficiently. Well, yeah, there's no doubt that those cable services are eating into our audience somewhat, and it's purely anecdotal, but I just know that with with my mates, and I'm 33, um, if they're out working all day, a lot of them are professionals, they're not home by 6pm. They're getting their news online from the newspapers, um, or they're dipping in and out of something like Sky News or CNN, where you can just flick it on for 15 minutes, get the biggest stories of the day, and then move on. You don't have to sit down and watch a news bulletin when a network tells you to. Um, for people of our age, I know that's that's certainly a, a huge difference from what would have happened in the past. I, I just wonder whether or not there's any value, and, and I, <laughs> this is personal opinion only, um, I wonder whether or not there would be any value in one of the commercial networks biting the bullet and putting a bulletin on at 8.30 or 9 o'clock. 
Well, that's what do you think? I, I think that's I think that's a, a, a fascinating theory and, and right up there with the uh, with the concept of one of the networks biting the bullet and putting a lot of funding into Channel Thirty One to build talent. Well, what about this? I'll, I'll, I'll put it out there as well. I mean, I do a lot more work in radio than TV, but, you know, radio is a different model. I mean, it's news on the half hour of the hour, but just five minutes and that's it. And radio news announcers are very, very good at condensing things down to bite-sized pieces. They can be criticised for that. What if TV went the same way, that as part of an ad break or something, you also got more news breaks, but less of the half-hour news and more five- and perhaps ten-minute bits um, throughout the night. Well, that's what, that's How what, would you rate it, though? Well, that's what Channel 7 started doing uh, when uh, they kind of ended their 10.30 mm. bulletin and now it's a, you know, a five- to ten-minute slot somewhere between 10.30 and 11.30. And, Brett, to answer your question, I think, how, how would you rate it? Well, it wouldn't actually be the news that you were rating, but it would be... It would become, again, the popularity of your network. Mm. People would... Uh, more likely watch the shows that came uh, during, before, after your small news bulletins because you presented the better news. Do you see that happening, James? I, well, I think if you... Yeah, that, that, that's one slot in, in, in the night. I think if you wanted to do a, a five-minute bulletin on the half hour or the hour, um, the programming guys then have an enormous headache with trying to schedule everything because... Um, Shows would need to be shorter to fit in the the five minute news break plus mm. the ads because you're not going to want to lose any any advertising spots in any given hour. And also, um, it's it's it it would make it harder to kind of maintain the credibility that uh, a, a well regarded news service uh, needs to build up. Well, yeah, well like, hits wouldn't be hits if it was being done like that. Right, exactly. Which which brings us back to. The, the fact that to be seen as a serious network, you still have to be seen to be serious about news. Um, you know, I remember the days which feel like a lifetime ago, but really aren't that long ago, when Seven's News in Melbourne, for example, was rating appallingly, just extremely badly, um, particularly, I guess, in the period after they sacked Mal Walden. And uh, there was a feeling around at nine of, why do they keep bothering couldn't they use that half hour better? Just clear the field and put something up against us for people who don't want to watch news. But the fact is, if you want to be seen as a serious network, you have to have that sort of flagship bulletin in your schedule. Well, and, and also, Channel 7 was the uh, the last holdout with the 6.30 news bulletin. Uh, you know, ch- Channel Channel 9 had the, had the 6pm bulletin. Channel 10 went to 5pm. Channel 7 had... 6.30 for a lot longer than any of the other networks and uh, and let that go in order to compete, which never really made much sense to me. Well, but my, again, it's kind of a, it's an interesting historical thing that certainly in, in Victoria, my understanding is that it was the case that the news was put on at 6.30 because the pubs closed at 6. It was the, the old 6 o'clock swill. So everyone had lined their beers up on the bar <laughs> at the last call, throw them down, get turfed out of the pub sometime soon after 6 o'clock and be home in time for the 6.30 news. Um, I don't think anyone anticipated that, you know, a couple of decades on, it would be the situation where people are just working a lot more hours and they're not home um, at 6 o'clock anymore the way they, they used to be. Um, home at 6.30. They'd finish work at 5, have a few beers, come home, see the news at 6.30. Well, what a seismic cultural shift there's been since those days. 
I must say, the number of things I've heard blamed on the uh, the old six o'clock swill from, um, <laughs> you know, um, domestic disputes to pregnancies to, um, you know, alcoholism and everything else, all blamed on the fact that pubs closed at six o'clock. That's well, right, and now new scheduling as well. <laughs> uh, but again, this is, uh, you know, we, we keep talking about uh, the way TV networks are changing and uh, the dumbing down of the networks and the... the uh, excessive commercialization of commercial networks and the sensationalization of, of the commercial networks none of this is new I and mean, this is this is stuff that they were talking about in the 1970s I mean that's why network was such a, a popular movie at the time because uh, people went yes that's how television is and uh, and you know it was the same in the fifties and and uh, there's always been for as long as television's been around, which is about two hundred and twenty years now. There's always <laughs> that's right. That's all, all two hundred and twenty of those years. Commercial TV's been going down market. Apparently, the theory goes, but it's also human nature to hanker for past days which are supposedly better, but weren't necessarily. Well, that's that's you know I uh, I looked through the uh, some old copies of the Age on on microfiche in the State Library uh, a little while ago, and yes, it, it was very fiddly and very very mm. difficult to uh, to do. And I was having a look at the the reporting and and the sort of things that that they reported back then, and uh, and this is you know going back to the seventies and. Uh, and people talking about how the age was this uh, magnificent newspaper. It was always the way it is now, just uh, with less less articles from the Guardian. I mean, that that was pretty much it. There was there, there was a lot more uh, locally sourced content, but other than that, the the quality hadn't really changed. The stories hadn't really changed. Maybe the number of advertise uh, advertisements had changed, but. Other than that, there, there wasn't really that much. I don't think, uh, you know, I, I really don't think that we can any longer mistake moving with the times for, for dumbing down. I think we're, we're, we should be getting past that. We should be more mature. Well, and but there are parallels there between commercial TV, free-to-air TV, and uh, and the newspapers. Um, if if the papers have more outside content and fewer reporters than, than they did in their heyday, it's simply because they, they've been challenged so much by uh, online material. So uh, we're all kind of working through the same issues, as it were, <laughs> um, and trying to find solutions to that. You know, I... You're a you're a film buff, Josh. You yes. studied cinema. Um, the advent of widescreen was to combat this terrible new invention, which was going to kill the cinema, and that was television. Well, we all still go to the movies, don't we? Well, yeah, you know, and and this happened with the movies with uh, with uh, VHS tapes coming out, and then DVD, and then oh, piracy, internet piracy. Uh, you know, that didn't really stop uh, The Dark Knight making $800 in its opening hour. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, exactly. So I, I think um, things change, they morph, um, uh, they adapt, but um, not necessarily always in bad ways. Well, yeah, and, and I think that's uh, that, that's the way we have to look at it is Sunday's gone and it was very good for a very long time uh, quite recently though it wasn't very good no. for a very short time 
uh, and now it's gone. And something else will come and and take its place on commercial television because there will always be a need for at least one intelligent commercial current affairs program. Um, but also, it, it goes it goes beyond that, even to, to, to the other programming content more broadly. Um, if you look at the ABC's Wednesday night now, they're doing uh, commercial station-type viewer numbers, um, and uh, that's that's going to filter through the system as well. I was very interested to read the other day, and I can't remember where. It might have been Crikey, actually, which I'm not allowed to say out loud because I'm a non-employee, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, apparently, David Gingell had been had been offered something similar to the Gruen transfer not long before the ABC announced that they were doing the Gruen transfer. Um, I, I think that's that's really interesting, and that's the kind of stuff that's going to start to happen now. It's it's a pure trend thing that the commercial networks would look at the kind of stuff the ABC is putting to air on Wednesday nights, and and the numbers they're doing, and and want to hop hop on that bandwagon. Um, it's too easy to say. Everything on the commercials is rubbish, and everything on the ABC is worthy. Um, it, it'll all filter out. Well, yeah, and that's that's what's happened time and time again, and uh, and everything old is new again. I think that's the way it goes. Yeah. Just uh, just just before, because we are running out of time, James. But just before we go, has anything been happening over in Europe? Uh, I have been on the Sunny Bill hunt for the past week. Right, you'll have yes, to. Blank. I'm getting the telephonic equivalent of blank stairs. Yes. Uh, no, no, James, I'm a, I'm a big uh, rugby league and union fan, of course. So what you're talking about is the defection of Sonny Bill Williams from the Canterbury-Bankstown Bulldogs mm-hmm. in uh, the National Rugby League here in Australia to the French Union Club of Toulon. And um, he's Absolutely. getting about twice as much money per year to defect the union. That's right, and he's, he's departed the Bulldogs mid-season and, and mid-contract, so there's mm. all sorts of uh, legal action going on. He uh, was rumoured to have been arriving in France early last week um, and, and didn't, and uh, we haven't seen him since, but the, the hunt is, is still on. I've handballed it off to someone else to, to mix our football codes for a mm. moment. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and but that's, it's, it's an enormous story in Sydney. Tom, you would probably know better than I, but I get the feeling that this is kind of a rugby league equivalent of, of uh, a couple of Wayne Carey stories. We've oh, well, I mean, he, he, someone said to me, it's a bit like if Buddy Franklin suddenly upped stakes and went to, say, Ireland to play Gaelic football and just left Hawthorne, for example. That's what it's done to Melbourne. But what's been interesting, of course, about this story is for years, rugby league, and especially the Australian rugby league, had plundered the ranks of rugby union players all around the world. Oh. And all of a sudden, now that it's more than a decade that union's been professional, the French clubs have no salary cap and they, they've got very wealthy owners and they can now pay more than what the Sydney or Queensland rugby league teams can play. And so they're poaching those players back. And some would say, well, that's just fair competition between the, 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 the two rugby codes. Well, that was what the whole well, kind of Super 14s was about, now. wasn't it? Well, it's, it's potentially unfair competition in going the other way, Tom, because um, having a salary cap in place could seriously damage the NRL in trying to keep these guys. Well, well the, big, the big thing for the NRL, and I'm not turning into a sports program, but it, it's the same as in Melbourne having too many clubs in Sydney. The NRL could get rid of its salary cap as long as it was prepared to allow three or four, possibly even five Sydney clubs to go broke. 
and right. the AFL could do the same thing, but it wants to keep the, the struggling clubs going, hence the salary cap has to stay if you want to keep those clubs in place. But they're still going broke right. anyway, aren't they? The, isn't South Sydney <laughs> in that kind of position? Well, they can be started on South Sydney. I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got an insider's view of South Sydney because I'm very good friends with one of its owners, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's sending shockwaves through, through the league because players are going to realise that they can break, uh, breach their contracts because it's a different code and get paid a lot more money playing a very similar game but just in a different country. But from a personal point of view, uh, I've done I've staked out a couple of errant footballers in my career and uh, I'll give you the tip. Nice beats the hell out of Wagga for a stakeout. <laughs> <laughs> We'll, uh, we'll keep that in mind. And also, James, I'm astounded that, uh, that that report really didn't get much play in Melbourne at all. No, well, it is a very Sydney story. And yeah. You know how parochial Melbournians are about uh, Aussie rules football. Um, but uh, I, a number of my friends in Melbourne, uh, sort of I got the same reaction from them as I did from you just then. They'd never heard of this bloke. Um, and uh, I suspect that's probably the case in the Melbourne newsroom as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's well, they play what now? What's in fact, I I, I know that uh, the, the cameraman I was working with is a, is a Melbourne boy, and and he gets homesick sometimes and likes to listen to Three AW Breakfast online. And I know that uh, Ross Stevenson the other morning jokingly referred to this bloke as Billy Bob Thornton because he couldn't remember <laughs> his name. So that's how much play it was getting in Melbourne. Now, James, I hope with these uh, overseas postings that you're keeping all your illicit vices uh, in positions that they can't be uh, attributed to your good self if you uh, happen to end up in Singapore. Yes, we didn't even talk about that. (laughs) I'm certainly not going to talk about (laughs) what's happening with poor Peter Lloyd in Singapore. Um, Clearly, it's uh, still before the courts, and I wish him all the very best. Uh, but, but can I say what, you know, just from a, from a, a television and, and journalism junkie, uh, what a huge shock it was for me that, uh, that Peter Lloyd, who I uh, revered so much as a reporter, uh, could even be accused of such a thing. Well, but, but see, the, the point is, and, and this, it's actually quite a serious, serious matter, um, I've, I've read that, that part of his defence... Um, sort of presented as mitigating factors will be some of the horrific stories that he's covered while he's been away over the past few years from um, the uh, the tsunami to a number of bombings uh, he covered Bali and also through to ironically the um, execution of Van Nguyen in Singapore for um, trying to uh, travel with heroin on him. Now there is an organisation um, called DART which is specifically concerned with the trauma caused to news gathering people, reporters, cameramen, uh, photographers and others. Um, and that, that hasn't always been given the attention that it deserves. Um, I know that Brett McLeod from the Melbourne Newsroom is heavily involved in that organisation, as is Phil Williams from the ABC, who's just been posted back here as, as one of their London correspondents. And it really is a serious issue because when you look at when you look at the stories that Peter Lloyd has covered, and I don't know the man, I I don't know what's been going on in his personal life, but it's not beyond the realms of possibility that you might start to have some uh, some difficulties. Well, yeah, and, and as a, a foreign correspondent, I'm, I'm sure that uh, you rely so heavily on uh, a certain number of fixes uh, that, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't be that hard for one of them to turn their trust on you and, uh, and you know, fixes essentially do services for a price. 
Uh, yeah, they, they do. And a good fixer will make your story and a bad fixer will, will ruin your story or perhaps worse. Yes, but you are you're you're in you're in foreign countries where you don't speak the language. Um, if if you're in those circumstances in the third world, then the, the fixer is the most important person in the operation. Um, and if you can't rely on them, you've got problems. Well, yeah, and then it's a it, it is also you know if someone wanted revenge against a journalist, it's a really easy back door. Well, potentially, yeah, yeah, absolutely. James, thank you very much for joining us on on Box Cutters yet again. Uh, we look My forward to, to speaking to you in about four weeks, and uh, and yeah, keep us uh, keep us in mind with uh, all news that happens over in London Town, and and maybe next time we'll uh, we'll, we'll talk about the uh, the horrible sensationalisation of uh, news in Europe. Yeah, okay, let's do that. Yeah, That's sure. A good kicking off point. <laughs> thanks, James. Lovely, thanks, guys. Hey, um, when I cast my pod. It's with the box cutters in mind. Box cutters. Pod. Cast. Done. Pork is on the table. And that is the box cutters news. Yeah, the news just went on for a very, very long time. That's uh, that, that's what I'm saying. Okay. That uh, you know did. Yeah, we had uh, we had news that, that we had pre prepared, and then we had uh, kind of a news interview segment with uh, with Tom, and then uh, a news uh, look and uh, and a look back with James, and then that's the end of the news, and <laughs> that's, that's the end of the show. Almost. Pretty much. Have you got Have you got yeah. some pork, Brad? Um, Hollow Man's being kind of rested for Olympics and then is coming back uh, in a different time slot. Yeah, I don't care. Um, no, because you don't like it. Are you, are you seeing... Are you, have you been watching The Hollow Man? Oh, I, I have watched it. I, I've got to say that the, the first episode I wasn't sure. I'm now warming towards it. But I note that another... Uh, you know, the Gruen transfers, another show which is apparently going to be, could be picked up by a commercial network as early as next year, but the ABC has commissioned it for a second series. The Gruen transfer has done extraordinary numbers, and, and mm. at the start it was really uh, just piggybacking off uh, the popularity of Spicks and Specs. Mm. In this last week, Spicks and Specs, nowhere to be seen in the top 20. Gruen transfer, just a little bit outside the top 10. Really? Mm. Uh, nationally, it's... Extraordinary. So, uh, you know, p- people are unhappy about uh, about specs and specs, and uh, it's too late for them to change it this year. Yeah, just, because they're all in the can. Because they're all in the can. Yes. Uh, it's a it's a, a, a strange situation that they're in. So, I, I'm really but, looking forward to another season of the Groom Transfer. I oh, think the it's tra- exceeded all our expectations. The one thing that bugs me about the Groom Transfer is the way that. Uh, Will comes out at the start of the show and does his bow. What what is the necessity of that? Why can't they just go in straight to the panel? Why is it you'll you'll always find a thing, won't uh, you? No, no, no. I know. With, with, it, with every but, show, there's always a host who tries to attract too much attention to themselves. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> but um, ha- uh, thank ha- you very much for uh, coming on the show, Tom Could- Elliott. And uh... <laughs> would it actually work on commercial TV? Would they have that freedom to be able to do what they do on ABC? I, I think a problem with the Gruen transfer is that it will – they're using up all their good ideas and mm-hmm. it will get harder and harder and harder to find things, to find different advertisers each week who are prepared to come on and make a, you know, a little three-minute commercial or whatever it is. I, I think it could work on commercial TV, but I think it would upset to me. It, it, it would cut a bit close to the bone. I think it's the sort of thing that's probably best done on a, on, on a government-owned network. 
on a on a network that doesn't have commercial considerations. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cuz I mean when you think of some of those spoof ads they make. I mean that's oh. I mean if you have them on commercial TV it's going to upset people. Definitely. It's it, you know if if they had the let's take the New Zealand uh let's invade New Zealand ads. Yeah. Uh, for for an example. And how much money does New Zealand tourism spend on Australian television mm. every year? Uh, that sort of thing could really cause a network huge problems. Well, it could do, although you could argue that by advertising how good New Zealand is, it makes sense for us to invade it and take it over for ourselves. Hey, look, I'd, uh, I'd be more than happy to not have to have a passport stamped in order to uh, go and spend some time in Wellington. But, you know, <laughs> it's hard enough for us to keep including Tasmania on the map of Australia. <laughs> There's no way New Zealand would make it in there. Tas- Taswadia? Yeah. Right. Mm. And that brings us to the end of Box Cutters episode 143. I think it does. It really does. Is there some housekeeping that we're supposed to do? Uh, there's just uh, well, there's uh, there's if you if you enjoyed the show, uh, please comment on the blog yeah. uh, at boxcutters.net mm. or uh, the sexy email us new look blog. The, it is a sexy new look blog. Or email us hooray at boxcutters.net. Uh, also, if uh, if you enjoyed the show, go into the iTunes Music Store or uh, anywhere else that you find the show. Last FM. If you're a Last FM listener. Uh, and uh, and you sync your iPod with Last FM, and uh, there's a, a box cutters page there that you can uh, go and put some comments on and help other people find box cutters there as really? well. Yeah, how did they get there? That's what Last FM. Yeah. It what just, is Last? How, is, how does Last FM work? That Last Box FM, is there? Last FM is uh, is this uh, program and website that uh, pays attention to your iTunes, pays attention to your iPod, and will then list the things that you've been listening. So you can actually find. So you, you remember when you were in high school, Tom? I'm sure that you, you've experienced this. Uh, you know, in high school, you'd uh, you'd meet someone new. Maybe maybe a girl has caught your eye, and the one of the first questions you ask is, "So, what music do you listen to?" This was a long time ago, and of course, recorded music had only been, you know, it was gramophone records <laughs> back then, but uh, no, no, I mean, if you're into live music as well, I mean, Last FM's fantastic for reviews and, uh, and clips and so forth, so highly recommend it. So it's a, it's a recommendation service based on what they've observed that you're into. But you can also, you can also say, uh, go to Last FM and kind of use it like Pandora used to be. You can say, I really like this band. Uh, and it will then play you a bunch of songs that it also thinks you might like. So if you like mm. Sonic Youth, it might then go and play Husker Do, might go and play you uh, from from Husker Do, might go to Ride, might go to you know all these all these other bands, and uh, and so you get to to hear some new bands as well, some things that uh, you might not have heard before, and you can also podcast recommendations so uh i think you know once a week or once a day or something uh they suggest a new song that you can actually just podcast automatically and uh and have a listen to Uh, it's good so if you are a last fm user uh go and comment on uh on the box cutters page there i want to say thanks very much you're going to put a link up to that i will I'll, i'll put a link up to that good uh i'll write that down now uh thanks very much to crumpler our giveaway sponsors. Uh, Brett, Excellent stuff. Quiz coming up coming in up. the next uh, couple of weeks. Yes. Yeah, quiz will be coming back. I'd imagine next week. Yeah, Crumpler.com.au is where you can call. find them. And 3RRR, whose studios we use for recording this podcast each and every week, they're on the web at rrr.org.au. Or at 102.7. On the FM band, don't forget if you're a broadcaster, there's a compulsory broadcaster's meeting coming up for the radiothon. 
I also want to say thank you so much, Tom Elliott. We've made you late, and I hope that's uh, that, that's not necessarily a bad thing because you've enjoyed being here. Josh Brett, I'll be in a great deal of trouble when I go home, but it's been well and truly worth it. I'll look forward to it another time. Thank you very much. Until next week, my name is Josh Canal. This is where you, you say your name, Tom. My name's Tom Elliott. I continue to be Brett Cropley. Thanks for listening to Box Cutters. We're all a bit croaky this week. We, we are. <clears throat> Catch us again next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. And hey, let's be careful out there. <laughs> <laughs>